0: Comedian Emo Phillips has this joke, and you may have heard it. I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Well, are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian. Me too, are you Protestant or Catholic? Protestant, me too, are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist, wow, me too, are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of our Lord? Oh, Baptist Church of God, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? Oh, Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? Or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He said, oh, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. And I said, die, heretic. (laughs) And pushed him off. Now, I've heard this joke a few times, and it's one that always makes me a little uncomfortable because like all good humor, it cuts just a little too close to the truth. And not just because it points out how normal it is for us to carve out small microsections of Christianity and how it is usually those closest to us that we can feel the most vehement difference. The most uncomfortable part of that joke is the fact that it begins in almost death. And it ends in death. And I think Phillips probably does that on purpose because it has us confront just how serious our divisions have been or can be, how much our divisions can feel like a death. Last week I mentioned how the various groups in the church at Corinth have been quarreling, engaging in fiery emotional disagreement. They're actively antagonistic, and in today's passage, Paul uses a significant word to describe their divisions. He says, now I appeal to you that there be no divisions among you. And schisms is the literal Greek word there for divisions, and it's pulled directly from the political arena of Paul's time. If Paul were to use our language today, the exhortation would probably probably be, "I appeal to you that there be no partisan politics, no party politics among you." In the church at Corinth, the current political parties are mentioned by name in our passage. I belong to Team Paul. This is a group that that, that declares their allegiance foremost to Paul, the founder of the church. We trust the teaching of the one who knows us best, who has the relationship, who's been there since the start. I belong to team Apollos. Apollos is a man we know from other scriptures that is one of the most eloquent, intelligent teachers of the time. We trust the most educated one, the one with the pedigree, the supreme intellect. I belong to Cephas, Peter. And we know from other scriptures that Peter's usually the one on the more conservative law-keeping side of the debates. We trust the one who honors tradition. And then there's a group, they seem to have the the right idea, but they seem to be using it in a kind of holier-than-thou posture. Yes, well, we belong to Christ as opposed to whatever y'all are doing. And Paul calls them to stop interacting with one another like political parties carving out their territory us here you there the backbiting the power grabs the unquestioning allegiance to your leader your people who are right and and all the while knowing that the other side is not just wrong but all of them evil church of jesus christ let there be no party politics among you and your way of being easier said than done right there is this four-story dorm on the campus of Davidson College called Watts Dormitory. First Watts refers to the first floor of that dormitory, and traditionally, it has housed freshman guys. When I was a junior at Davidson College, I was the co hall counselor for First Watts. As co-hall counselor, I was in charge of helping this group of freshman teenagers acclimate to college life, do my part to open space for them to to bond and connect as these 18-year-olds are coming from all over the country and meeting for the very first time. And honestly, never in my life have I had an easier job. Within a week, this particular group of guys, they just had every meal together, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Within a month, they'd signed up for for the college's annual fall flickerball tournament. It's this sport that's an interesting mix of ultimate frisbee and football that's been played at Davidson for decades. And Week one of Flickerball season, the whole hall goes out to Walmart Walmart to purchase these long sleeve, navy blue, dry fit starter shirts because we're first Watts. We're proud of it. We're gonna be the ones on the field that wear a uniform for a sport no one's heard of. (laughs) A lot of pride. Then they won the tournament. And I thought as hall counselor, that may have been the worst thing because it really started to go to their head just how amazing it was that they were first Watts. I remember the way started to talk, the hall even started to talk about how, not only how great they are, but like how other halls are ridiculous or just not as good. We, they'd eat together, as I mentioned, and there was this sort of pride about being together to, to such a degree that on a couple of occasions when someone else from another hall or place came by, it was made known to them. This is a first Watts table. You can write it off as sort of freshman immaturity, but, but it was real. And isn't there something to that subtle shift that is so true about groups? Haven't we often seen somewhere it go like this from what an amazing team, what an amazing family, what an amazing squad, what an amazing summer cabin, what an amazing church, what an amazing nation. What an amazing freshman Hall. What an amazing group too. And we're better than them or or even. what an amazing group and and they're wrong. They're bad. They're evil. die heretic. What is it about groups, even benign groups, even in good groups with good and solid aims and goals? What is it about groups that on one hand are absolutely necessary and good? We need to belong somewhere? but can also so easily veer into this direction of clinging more and more tightly to our way and our people, and then this heightened us-them thing starts to emerge. I think a lot could be said about that, but for today, I'm mindful of the voice of, of minister and theologian and professor Howard Thurman who made this prophetic observation in his 1949 work, Jesus and the Disinherited, Hatred. Hatred of another person or a group. Hatred often begins. Doesn't form overnight, doesn't necessarily form quickly, but hatred often begins in a situation where there is contact without fellowship. Contact that is devoid of any of the primary overtures of warmth and fellow feeling and genuineness. Thurman's concern is that individuals or groups may pass one another at the grocery store or church or on social media or the coffee shop or the debate platform, they have contact. But they have no fellowship, no sense of personal connection that goes deep enough to engender overtones of warmth and fellow feeling and genuineness, even amid significant disagreement. And where there is contact without fellowship, there is in fact some measure of distance. Thurman goes on to say that in the open soil of distance between two people or two groups, the weeds of bias and prejudice can very easily start to take root. The weeds, too, of strife and jealousy, anger and gossip, all the forms of hatred, they thrive in that soil that is made available when two people or two groups, they have contact but no fellowship. It can happen in marriages when two people start... becoming like ships in the night for too long. It can happen when congregations, they they worship within a mile of one another or even a pew from one another, but they never break bread together. It can happen when people know generally about other groups, those people on that side of town, those people in that country, that generation, that color, that school, but have no genuine relational connection. And goodness, I I am all for the the benefits of, of, of social media. I participate. But I also feel an apt definition for social media is contact without fellowship. Hatred often begins in a situation in which there is contact without fellowship. Contact that is devoid of any of the primary overtures of warmth and fellow feeling and genuineness. Among one of the many problems in Corinth is the fact that these hardening factions and identities, Apollos people, Paul people, Cephas people, uh, they are starting to distance themselves from one another. They're not sharing meals or even the Lord's Supper as regularly together. I think this is why Paul begins his first explicit appeal to the schism church of Corinth this way. Now, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters... In the name of Jesus Christ. And then the next sentence. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters. A phrase that implies to the church before you're any other identity, any other subgroup, any other party affiliation, any other theological tradition or allegiance, Oh, you are siblings, you are family with Jesus Christ as the head. And yes, families can and do disagree. Families can get ugly, but family's family, right? Family finds a way. Importantly, family pursues fellowship with one another. Here again, Howard Thurman's insight echo what Paul's doing here. In that same book of Thurman's, he speaks very practically about how a people can break through the walls of division We often erect. The first step toward love is a common sharing of a sense of mutual worth and value. You are all brothers and sisters. Relationships based first on a sense of equal siblinghood. And this, he goes on to say, this has to be discovered in real situations. Natural and free. In other words, you have to get together as equals, as family, in real-time concrete gatherings. And yet, who among us is naive enough to suppose that that the hurting marriage, or the broken relationship, or the wounded church, or the rich and the poor, or the left and the right, or, or any other group that knows a schism, or divide, or hurt of some sort, Who among us is naive enough to suppose that simply getting them in the same room will lead to the discovery of a warmth and fellowship? Far more likely those in the same room will find a way to build the wall even higher and wider. I think this may be why Paul does not just say, you Apollos people, you Cephas people, you Paul people, you that prefer the, the educated, the route, you that are, that are biased towards, towards the tradition, you that are biased towards our founder and the relationships. Time to march across the weeds of anger and jealousy and gossip that have grown up between you. Get together and heal. Instead, Paul's immediate focus, before anyone arrives to the common table, the common conversation, is first and foremost having everyone fix their heart afresh upon the cross. For Paul, it is truly the cross of Jesus Christ that alone has the power to heal us. He says it quite clearly in verse 18. The question is, how is the power of the cross known to us? I mean, how? Are we to receive the power of the cross and then bring that kind of power to bear on our table fellowship with the other side, the hurting relationship? How does that work? That seems kind of like an urgent work and an urgent question. I think Paul's explanation of the cross in Philippians chapter 2 is actually where we need to go to appreciate more in depth what it means to receive the power of the cross in the way we relate to one another. This morning, I'm just going to read a portion of Philippians 2 from the message translation. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God. I mean, talk about being on the the right side, the right team. He had equal status with God, but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Rather, he emptied himself. He set aside the privileges of deity, of being right, of being higher, of being better, of being stronger, and he took on the status of a servant and became human. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. Jesus had every right to stay on his side, every right to claim to be on the better team, the divine right team. He had every right to denounce all of the sinners on the other side. And Jesus clings to none of that prerogative. He empties himself onto complete vulnerability save for the open embrace. Because central for Jesus is, was reconciling all peoples unto himself and to one another as family. At the end of the day, God would rather forgive and have the relationship than be right. And so Paul ends our passage today by reminding the entire church at Corinth that the message of the cross is the power of God. Because Paul knows that if the church fixes its heart upon the message of dropping every privilege, every right, every allegiance that might try to go above theirs to Jesus, if they drop all those for the sake of love, then finally, fully, the church is ready to risk walking across that field of weeds. Then finally, in the power known only in that complete vulnerability, the church may discover the gift of surprising family fellowship and so taste the very heart of the gospel, which is, in fact, in real-time, concrete reconciliation with God and our siblings across every imaginable divide. What if we allowed our hearts this morning to look afresh upon the cross of Jesus Christ? What if our arms opened wide And by the power of the Holy Spirit, even our hands opened. And we held loosely every other allegiance or identity that gives us any sense of being a little more right, a little bit better, a little more honorable. What if we loosened our grip on being people of Apollos or Cephas or Paul conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat? What if we loosened our grip on the names of the schools we've attended and the degrees to which we have attained? What if we loosened our grip on our preferred generation, Z, millennial, X, baby boomer, silent, greatest, denominational affiliation, Presbyterian, Methodist, Catholic, Native or immigrant, member of this group for such and such many years, veteran of this group with these distinguished things. What if by the power of the Holy Spirit, every single right, every single prerogative, every single advantage, every other allegiance, we loosened our grip on all of them and we began to sense the profound power of complete vulnerability only as a child. In God's family. Now that might feel like a death, which it is, unto life. Those who lose their life will find it. And standing clothed only in the love of Jesus Christ, I wonder which field of weeds God might then call some of us to walk across in the coming days. I wonder what long lost sisters or long overlooked brothers we may gain in these coming days, having dropped our defenses, our prerogatives, even some of our sacred identities. Truly and genuinely, I wonder what is the depth and breadth of the power of the cross, which clings to nothing save for sinners.